crown the goat, you drowning Ronans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I wasn't sure whether I was going to put out a podcast this week because it's just been Christmas. It's just been Christmas. But I managed to find a little bit of time to put this episode together. I didn't want to be breaking your routines. I didn't want to be breaking anyone's routines because I know there's people who listen to this every single week. And it's only a couple of days after Christmas you're probably having your little walks. You're having your little walks. No one's back in work yet. No one's back in college yet. Your family are driving you fucking mad. So you're having your little walk. So I've made a nice podcast for your little walk. I have a conversation with the wonderful, kind and funny comedian PJ Gallagher. Who's a broadcaster and a comedian. And we had this chat in Vicar Street a few months back in Vicker Street up in Dublin and it was an absolutely it was a class gig so this is a podcast full of lots of laughs and the second half I have to do a little content warning the second half is about mental illness because PJ is someone who has experienced mental illness and he speaks about that but even though I'm giving you a heads up about it he speaks about it with a huge amount of humour and compassion so here's my chat with Comedian and broadcaster PJ Gallagher. Sorry, well, you had... I left you waiting. I didn't mean that. <laughs> You're grand. Um, so, I don't know, where do I start? I mean, you're a gas cunt. <laughs> you're a funny man. And when I was, you're one of the people that I would have seen on TV that made me feel uh, like when I, when I was younger, before I even, I'd been in school, and I'd go, this cunt. What he's doing, it makes me feel like this is something I could at least attempt or try. You know, seeing you on Naked Camera in particular. And as well, the fact that, the fact that you had Maeve Higgins was unreal. Because I'd never heard, like... Now, I know she's from Cork, but Cork is just Limerick's older brother. But he, he, even hearing her accent on TV made me feel, geez, it can't be that hard if she's from Cork, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like it's it feels like it's so long ago now. Like it's what it is. Yeah, it's that what, retro. What, telly, you, you started you know? when two thousand and five. Two thousand four, we made it. Yeah, the first Jesus. year we made it in two thousand four, and like uh, it was a different world then, though. You know, yeah. Like n- everybody has a camera in their pocket now. Nobody mm-hmm. did then. Like literally nobody did. So people were more kind of innocent and themselves. There was no sort of suspicion. If you're a weirdo, you know they were just trying to help you out, you know. Uh, so it was kind of different, you know, whereas... Actually, that's true. It'd be very different now, wouldn't it? Oh, it is totally different, yeah. Like, every time something happens now, people automatically think, what's going on? Who's looking? Is anybody putting this on their phone? You know, you have to be so conscious all the time about being filmed. And back then, it just wasn't a thing. Like, you know, you could just talk to anybody at any stage. And uh, I don't know, you kind of got people at their best, I think, because they were so unaware that you were doing... Because you, you would walk up to someone in Dublin and say, I've lost my monkey, and mm-hmm. Dublin people would get irritated with you, but they'd still want to help you. So it was like, where's where'd you last see the fucking thing, you know? I was like, well, I can't, I'll, I'll, fucking, I'll help you now, you prick, but a better shit to be at. And, but they would help, you know? And they'd be annoyed with you constantly for... Because <laughs> they, they'd feel guilty if they didn't help you out, you know? So it was... Uh, I don't know, I think it was just good that way. We always kind of saw it as more a sketch show... That's what I fucking loved about it. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing, why it was so important to me was, so I'd have been, I never saw it as just a hidden camera show. 
because I'd seen hidden camera shows on fucking Sky or what was that one? It's not Jeremy Beadle. Smile, you're on candid camera. Remember that shit? And then there was Jeremy Beadle and there was a few more and I didn't view years in that way even though that those were the mechanics that you used. Yeah, well, like, we always thought it was like a sketch show but the straight man didn't know he was in it. Exactly. So as long as I looked like the idiot, we were always happy, you know. Because... What I was doing at the time in school, I was doing prank phone calls. Yeah. And I just thought I was messing. I, like, I was doing these prank calls, but I was inventing characters. And the other person on the end of the call didn't know that they were in this sketch. But I didn't consider what I was doing creative. I thought I was just being a little shit. And when I saw what ye were doing, I was like, holy fuck, this is a sketch show it's just the other person doesn't know they're in a sketch show, but you were inventing characters. You had ca characters with catchphrases, with all of these things, and you're writing comedy on the fly and making it happen. Like, you had uh, Jake Stevens, like... Yeah, I know, like, it's just such a weird character, you know? Like, uh, and, and that all just came about because I was working in a job I, I fucking hated, you know? I was working on the building site, and... There was one guy that worked with us. I won't say his name, or whatever, but like he just talked about sex all the time. Yeah. Uh, but he did. But he hated using. He hated bad language. <laughs> so, so that was it. So he hated. So, you know, so he'd be like, "I was there with me board the other night, and the big on her. It was like fucking hell, man." And it was the most. It was so irritating looking at the paper and saying, "I'd say she has a love you." You know, it was so, so stupid. And I remember just being so irritated by it. And then, you know, and then it just came good. You know, I told that story to, to the lads we were filming with one day because the whole Jake thing was a total mistake. You know, mm -hmm. we, we were supposed to do a completely different sketch and then it all went wrong and the guy had, that we were going to do it on wasn't there. So we just had this blue suit and I thought, I'll try this lad. He was doing my head in for a couple of years. So I'll try and do other people's heads and in where did the by paper, doing the same thing. Huh? The paper come into it? Uh, I don't know. I think that was just trying to think of something to do with my hands. <laughs> you know, like, it was just like, I, I guess, you, you know, you, you come up with a voice and then you let the voice frame how you walk and then how you walk, so how, whatever clothes you put on makes you act differently. It just kind of felt like a natural. And he used to read the paper all the time too. That was a bit of it. Like, he would read the paper and point out, like, all the... And the like, that was his, you know... The, <laughs> You know, like working a Sunday and just you got this fucking lad whistling in the corner at women's in bikinis. Like, it was just ridiculous. Uh, how did you go from just being a young lad called PJ to being on TV? Because that's the there was no fucking internet. So, no. like, did you do stand up first? What yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did stand up for years. Yeah, years. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, for 10 years I was doing stand up before. So, what that. age were you when you started Naked Camera? I was 29, I think. Oh, right, So okay. I was 29. I started doing stand-up in 96. Jesus, it feels like <laughs> fucking hell. And obviously it was a... The best thing about stand-up back then, though, was there was only like 12 people doing it, you know? Yeah. There's so many people. Like, there was literally 12 people. Yeah. I could name them for you now. Like, and and you, nobody thought it was going to be a career. It was a way you go into town and you, you realise if you talk for 10 minutes in the international, you'd get enough money to get pissed until Friday. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it felt like a scam, you know. So, yeah. But you never thought it was going to come of it, you know. Like I was saying, I say to you before, like I, 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 I never thought it was going to be a career. I just kind of wanted to find something I could be good at. And I didn't really give a shit what that was. 
that could have been anything because I was terrible at school and I wasn't great at sport. I used to catch balls with my face, you know. Mm-hmm. And my old man loved sport and all. I was trying to impress him too, you know. And, and then, like, uh, I couldn't... I wasn't good at any sort of labour stuff. So I kind of wanted to just find something I was good at, you know. And that turned out to be telling stories, I suppose. Because we were saying that backstage on the same, like, um, I was awful at school. I failed my leaving cert. I spent the entirety of school just being called a stupid prick. And when you don't... I, di- I didn't get the leaving cert. You didn't either. I, no, I didn't do it at all, no. Uh, what, the, but, I had an uh, argument with a haircut when I was 16, and I just went, I'm never going back to what that. What type camp. of haircut was it? Oh, I was fucking stupid. I was like... It was, what, like 1991, so I had all my head shaved with this big fringe. Ah! But, but my fringe... They never had a name, man. We had them in Limerick as well. Yeah, yeah I don't know if you remember those... Oh. All shaved, and there's that really long fringe, and it used to be a competition to who could have the longest. Yeah, but I have curly hair, so they, it turned ah. into dreadlocks, and people used to call them my shit sticks. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you can't wash the fucking things, you know? It's just like lumps of shit hanging out of your head. And then, because you, you can't see, I would put it over my ear. I did the kind of natural V across my face, you know? Because there used to be lads who were blessed with beautiful straight hair. And the coolest thing a lad could do in the 90s, in the, before 1995, was all shaved, then just this long, long piece of hair. And if they were able to blow it out of their face with fag smoke. Yeah, yeah. That was it. It was it. You were so cool. Yeah. But I just had shit sticks, you know. And then I tried <laughs> to grow my hair long. And because it was so cool, I just grew a beard on the back of my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just kept going out, you know, just got wider and wider, so. And they were like, cut it off, and you're like, fuck off, I'm yeah. 16, now I can do what I want. No, I cut it, so I, they said cut it shorter, so I cut it halfway, and uh, then I went to the school, and they said cut it again, and I went, I'm not cutting it again. I don't know, like, uh, I just knew I had enough, and you know when you, you, the adrenaline starts to kick in, and you go, I'm going to do something stupid, and your voice yeah. gets wobbly, and, and I went, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and, they, and he was like, oh, yeah. And then they went, uh, we'll talk, we're, we're going to talk to your parents. And I was like, yeah, well, well, I'm never coming back. And they said, really? And then I went around to, I, oh, I, when I started, I couldn't stop myself. I, I, re- I was realised how empowering it was. Like, it was just like, yeah. fuck off. And then they sent me to the foremaster and told him to fuck off. And then he sent me to the principal's office and he wasn't there. So I waited. And when he came in, I told him to fuck off. Yeah. And then I went home. And my man's like, what's wrong now? I told them all to fuck off. And I'm, I'm not going back ever again. And she had the weirdest reaction by going, I'm so glad to hear it. I've been going up there every week for three years. Like, <laughs> she was just like, as long as you're not sitting around this house, you're going to get a job, you're going to work. But like, she knew that, she knew it wasn't the right place for me. Mm-hmm. She knew it, you know, it was destroying me confidence being in there. I hated it, you know. See, that's the other thing as well. It's like, you, if you're not fucking fitting in, it's destroying your confidence, so you are better off out of it if it's making shit of your fucking, your yeah, well-being. Yeah. Like and I fit in with the kids, you know? I fit in with the other lads. But then, because, you know, there was classes, there was like 30 kids in the class back then, mm-hmm. and whatever. And then there was five classes, so they just got all the kids, like, fucking hell, some of the kids, like, there was kids in our class. <laughs> Like they weren't, we just weren't suited for school. And so, I remember one lad we used to call him Mr. Kelly because he was so overdeveloped. Do you know that way? Like, he, like, <laughs> like, yeah. he just, like, even when we went those lads his, in sixth year who looked like TDs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's it. 
if they take off their trousers in the shower and they have a big daddy cock on them, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's not even the same colour as the rest of them. Like, you fucking hell, hair and all. You're like, where'd you get that? It's like he rubbed it off his elf like, I'm just going. <laughs> but, but, like, there was these lads, they were probably held back three years already just because, and, and kids who definitely had mental health problems and yeah. fucked up families and then just lads who were wild and then fellas like myself who just, they can't sit down and think, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they put us all into the same class, and sure, it was uncontrolled. You're the exact same as me, then. So you, you got thrown into the class where everyone who's bad gets thrown in together. Yeah, yeah, and then they didn't... And then it was, it's fucking hilarious, because in other classes, lads go on the bunk, you know. Yeah. In our class, the teachers went on the bunk. Yeah. Because they, they were like... They were like, these lads aren't fucking... They're never going to do anything anyway. So, you know, it was no so, harm missing our classes. <laughs> what I found with... So I had the exact same fucking experience because for me, it was undiagnosed autism. So it was just... In my school, there was... I don't even think there was 30 in this class. It was like 16. And it was before junior starts, so you kind of couldn't get expelled. And just... <laughs> what you had was the likes of me who was autistic. Then you had other lads who... Deeply fucking traumatized lads who came from hard situations, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in class with very hard lads, then other lads who are just mad. And then, <laughs> but I, I was one of them. But I was like, how do I cope in here? And one of the shittest things for me with school was I learned to cope by, so I wasn't hard, I wasn't going to fight anyone. And I wasn't. I had to become a fucking mad bastard. I, I had, that had to be my thing. My, my way of survival had to be, well, this, this lad won't fight, but he'll do fucking anything. Yeah. He'll roll a joint in the back of the class. He'll tell the teacher to fuck off. Now, I hated myself when I was doing it, but as long as I got everybody laughing, I was kind of safe. Yeah. If you can make everyone laugh, you're not getting picked on. Because oh, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. How do I not get picked on in this class? and I can't fight anyone because I'm not a fighter, can I make everyone laugh? And that really ended up working for me because I didn't give a shit about schoolwork. I should have given the shit about it. And then you just get bolder and bolder and you get the label of being bold and then the teacher stopped teaching you. And then you stop getting asked for homework. I stopped getting asked for homework at 13. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they what, just don't ask you anymore. Oh, like, you get fucked out just because someone else did something. Yeah. yeah I'm not the, like, who did that? Someone else was behind. You get out and Gallagher follow him. <laughs> You're like, but fuck? did you ever start to... <laughs> did you experience a sense of pride in how bold you could be? Or, or? Uh, yeah, there was definitely pride in, in... Like, if someone calls you bad often enough, mm-hmm. you'll show them how fucking bad you are. Yeah. You know, and so then the other kids in the other class know who you are just because oh, you're yeah, so mad. And then, yeah, and then you're yeah. like, you're some head case, or you're the lad that doesn't have to wear his uniform anymore. Yes, you I didn't have to wear the uniform. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no point. I know, there's no point. They don't give a shit. You're the lad that can go to the toilet without putting his hand up. Yeah. They're just glad to see the back of you. Yes. <laughs> so, so you get all this stuff starts to happen, and, and you take pride in it. If, if you need to piss, you'll wait for the fucking teacher to come in. Because you know? then the other thing that happens too is... Some of the teachers then try to be friends with you as a way to control you, and then you look like the fucking coolest lad going. And the teacher's going, oh, there he is now, the little gorrier. <laughs> and the thing was, yeah. I used to love it until I got fucking expelled, until I got to 18, and then I'm like, oh shit, I feel like a fucking loser. Yeah, well... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because you go into the world and then... You go into the world and it doesn't you, matter how much of a mad... But like, it doesn't matter. I can no, try and roll joints at the back of the bus if I want. Yeah. 
it doesn't work like that in the real no, world. No, the party's over. Yeah. Like, yeah, the party's over. And I suppose you always think, like, like, I haven't done this one thing that everyone else has done, you know? Yeah, like, you're listening to your friends talking about going to college and you're yeah, listening to your friends talking about the having those leaving certain nightmares. And, like, I never sat an exam in my life, you know? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm proud of it now. Like, I never did any of that shit. But, you know, at the time you start thinking, what the fuck am I going to do with myself, you know? I suppose I was lucky that there was always, I, I just was, I've always been very lucky in people I've met, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when I walked into just the work experience in a warehouse at 16, straight out of school, Jason Bourne was working on the cables counter, okay. you know? Yeah. So if it wasn't for that meeting, then I never would have thought stand-up oh, so would be meeting thing. Jason is what got you into stand-up. Yeah, because he wanted to do it, but he was afraid to do it on his own. So ah. he just wrote sketches and... He kept booking me to do it. I didn't, like I had no interest in it. I you didn't hadn't even really thought know what of it, it was. beforehand. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really know what it was to be honest. And then, you know, it went, I was just very lucky. Things just led into. But themselves, the other you know? thing too, and this is what you said to me backstage, and I agreed with you, is the shame of fucking up school because there is a shame about it. Any, I was very driven to do something to prove to myself that even though you fucked up school, even though you failed your leaving cert, this TV shit, this comedy shit, music, fucking do that. And, and I was doing it as a fuck you to the teachers, but <laughs> also for 16-year-old me to go, you're not as bad as they say you are. Do you yeah, know what I mean? And, and in fairness, like, when you do stand-up or you do these things and you have a whole room of people laughing, mm -hmm. like, there's validation in that, you know? There's but did you ever feel that you practiced it while making the class laugh? Oh, big time, yeah. Yeah, because oh, it's the same it. buzz. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's the same buzz, yeah. When you get a room laughing, it's being right back in school, yeah. and it's like, yeah. I'm not getting digged into the back of the head today. Yeah, but it's also a weird way to make a living. Like, you're definitely... It's very odd, yeah. Asking people to fucking give you a round of applause just for being on time for work. <laughs> like, it's a strange... It's a strange fucking way to live, you know? Like, you're definitely asking people to like you all the time, you yeah. know? Like, it's, I don't know, you're, it's the ultimate showing off and looking for attention, I suppose, really, you know? So I remember people saying you're an attention seeker. So the fucking right of course I am. That's I the job. Am, yeah. It's just like calling a model a poser. Like, <laughs> that's the fucking job. You know, the job is looking for attention and trying to make it worth their while for giving it to you. You know, that's the job, you know? So, and I suppose you feel like that, that's the one thing you're good at. But then the problem is you start thinking, okay, I'm good at this, but is it actually worth anything? Mm -hmm. that's the other side of it then so I guess that's where like doing the TV stuff and, and all of that that's, a, that's where that comes into play that's when people start saying you know oh it was you know, like the small things like oh I was having a, a difficult time and me and me full of laughed at that and then you know it's the last thing we remember laughing at before someone died or whatever you know that sort of stuff and you start thinking oh well that's you know, it makes so a difference, maybe on a very you... small level but it makes some sort of a difference so you know? that's what you bank on because I'm I'm because as well, I would, like when I was doing rubber banded stuff in particular, I was thinking, it's good fun, but what's the fucking point in this? Yeah, yeah, but then exactly. when someone says to you, I was having a low period and your video made me laugh. Or one thing I enjoy about this podcast is my favorite messages are, are when a parent will establish an, a relationship with a child because they're both listening to this podcast. So I could have someone, a parent in their 60s and a, and a, a child in their 20s who didn't have much of a relationship. Yeah. And then because they're both listening to my podcast, 
They're now talking and they're friends. And I love that. And that makes... Because at the end of the day, who gives a fuck about ratings or who gives a fuck about applause? Like they're, they're empty things. But if you think that it's making a little difference in someone's life, yeah, well, then it, it feels good. Because the other thing with yourself, and this is because we did a live podcast before in Dunleary, was it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And my fucking hard drive broke and it never recorded. <laughs> I'm cursed with fucking... I've done three interviews with Tammy Tiernan and none of them fucking recorded. <laughs> but like... You do loads of work. You worked with uh, suicide prevention. You were out on boats. You were doing loads of volunteer work. I mean, what drives you to do that? And you don't really talk about it. Like, you literally, this is a thing you do. Where's yeah. that coming from, the desire to help? Uh, I thought, like, oh, fucking hell. I think a lot of that comes from uh, being adopted and stuff as well, to be honest. You know, there's always, no matter what happens, you'll always feel like you're a bit of a mistake. You know, mm -hmm. you're taking up space and... You know, you're kind of trying to fucking, I suppose, justify your existence in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. And people be there, oh, you're a great fellow. I'm a me whole a great fellow. I'm trying yeah. to, like, it's it's a lot of it is for me, like, you know. So when I was doing the blood bike stuff or the lifeboat stuff or whatever, it's kind of a way of trying to say, no, 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 you, you're like, <laughs> you're, you're, you're worth something, you know. And, and But the problem is it's, it, it, it perpetuates itself, you know, you, every time you do something you feel good about it, then you, you fall off, you feel, oh, no, I'm still a mistake, I'm still an accident. Or you feel guilty about feeling good feel, for yeah, it. Yeah, and then you feel guilty about feeling good and you have to do it all again and whatever else. But uh, at the same time, that's all right, you know. Uh, but I think it comes from that, you know. I think it comes from that. And as well, like I grew up in a house that was literally a social experiment, you know. Like, How like, do you mean? So my ma um, and my dad lived in the house and we had six schizophrenic patients that lived in the house with us. So That sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they, there was this the hate the it wasn't it was the Eastern Health Board at the time. So the Eastern Health Board uh, decided in their in their wisdom that they would take people uh, from the hospital environment, which was very different back then, yeah. put them in a more domestic environment, and um, that they'd need like sort of twenty four hour care, but not because they could leave the house or whatever, and uh, just give me my all the medication to give them and whatever look after them. But like, them. why your house? Was it like I'd choose a random house in Ireland? Like, well, this is the thing. I thought it happened all over Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was a thing. I thought, like, that's what happened. And then we went to write, we wrote a show about it. Because I tried to do this in stand-up, but it doesn't work in stand-up. No, and what, you're like, can you relate to my experience, everybody? <laughs> when you get up in the morning and there's four schizophrenic people in the kitchen. Fucking Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah, when you're literally it's wrestling. It's not airplane peanuts, like. I swear to God, it was literally you're wrestling away an invisible uh, Spanish-speaking gorilla. Or, you know, like, it's fucking... <laughs> Like, just, you know, like, the house was fucking, like, mad. Like, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and, it was mad. It was mad. It was yeah. fucking mad, you know. And then people would say, and the thing is, like, people would say, do you know that lad, he's always hiding in bushes around the street. I mean, he fucking lives with me, man. Right? Like, he fucking lives. He's in the room next door to me. Like, he fucking sleeps there. His name is Francis. Like, that's... And the other lad who walks around in an overcoat all the time and this big hat and he fucking goes, Meh. like, yeah, he's, he's in the other fucking room on the other side. Like, so, so it was, it was crazy, you know, it was fucking crazy. And my ma trying to balance all this and us and the fucking dog. What house has six schizophrenic patients, two kids, and then says, we need a fucking dog. So she went to check our dog. 
And Melville was useless, you know. Like he, he like he's like, oh, I'm going to mass and a two day mass, and he comes back fucking locked or whatever. So, you know, me ma hiding wine in the Hoover, like the fucking, <laughs> like it was just wild. And then you go into school and they say, sit down and be quiet. Are you, are you out of your fucking mind? You know where I just came from. And that was what they'd say, we're going to call your parents. I was like, fucking go, go for it, man. Do you not want them coming in here? <laughs> so it was just a, like, and then me and Una McKeever, we did write the show Madhouse about that experience because we, I, I couldn't make it work in stand-up at all, you know. And, uh, and it was only then we realised that there was only four houses in the country, I think, that were doing this. But, like, how did she uh, end up being the house? Was your man nurse? Like, what? Yeah, she was a nurse. Okay, yeah. So yeah, my yeah, man had okay. a history of nursing. She nursed in uh, well, Liverpool she could and London. she care for these people. So, well, they thought she could, but, like, it was a terrible idea. Uh, nobody can care. <laughs> you know, no Not one can six, do like. I remember when I went into the uh, hospital, it was actually very funny. I went into the hospital, you know, and I was in St. Pat's, and the reg doctor comes out, and they ask you everything, you know, name and address and your history, family history, and she was writing it all down, and then they went, and there was six schizophrenic people in there and she just stopped writing and stared at me and she goes what? <laughs> I'm there going, if I can shock her I'm doing really well <laughs> so it was like yeah so it was a strange existence and then you don't get a lot of attention when you're in that environment you know because there's Someone so many people taking need looking forward yeah. looking after so you go to school and you, you kind of that's where you can get your attention is with the laughs and with Mates and lads, and you know, being disruptive or whatever, you know. But how, how young, like, how young were you? Like, were you, were you under the age of five? Like, no, no, it wasn't. No, it was, I think it was, it was like fucking long time though. Like, it was, I think she did it for 14 years or something. Mm -hmm. So it was a, right through our youth, you know. Uh, yeah, right through our youth. But did you ever have difficulty then? Kind of, I mean, the thing with schizophrenia is you've got someone who is hearing and seeing things that aren't there. Yeah, and, well, I think, like, this is the thing, the diagnosis, was it schizophrenia all the time? I don't know. Oh, it definitely yeah. was with some lads because just, like, you know, one lad who would bark and, you know, and then another man who, who definitely, he, he saw, there was this man called Barney he used to think was following him around the house. That, that's, that was it, like... But then there was people but who... But did I, you have to entertain the idea of Barney as to, to live normally in the gaff? Uh, no, not Barney, but the dog in your man's belly I did. Uh, that, that's true, like... Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> but so it depended on the people, you know? But I think there was people then who were just institutionalised, who probably didn't have to end up in our house, you know, who were just... I don't know, they probably, like, if you had anxiety and it just was let go and go and go and go and then they couldn't care yeah. for themselves and then they end up in an institution and then they end up in a yeah. and, and you just can't look after, you know, you're just not able to look after yourself, really, you know. So I don't know if those people were, but that's what I was always told. you're talking there, I'm guessing the 1980s or early 90s? Um, early 90s, yeah. Right, right through the 90s, I suppose, yeah. Because we didn't have language back then. Like, I remember... Well, there was no mental health. You were either mental no, or you had health. Or you yeah. had... Um, that was well, the, the, the thing we had yeah. was, uh, oh, his nerves are at him. Yeah, his nerves what are at him. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Or he's, he's taken to the bed. Taken you know, to the bed, his nerves are at him. Or then... Uh, Great character. Nervous breakdown. I suppose... Uh, we don't even say that anymore, do we? Not really. I've been saying it lately. I don't know why, because it's not the right thing. Because you're from the era, but we don't... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just... 
I don't think you can open up a book and nervous breakdown is there. There's different, various things. Yeah. Um, what age were you when you found out you were adopted? Oh, I always knew. I always knew. I, I, I remember the time I found out everybody wasn't. Which wow. Is, yeah. No shit. I was chatting to a fella called Owen in primary school and we were having a chat and it suddenly became apparent in this chat that he was still with the parents that he came out of. And I remember thinking, fuck, like, the poor fella, they couldn't find anyone for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I was like, no one wanted him. <laughs> like, I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm feeling really sad for him. I mean, like, I just, in my head, you know, you got born and given to your folks and I, I don't really understand the logic of it. And then there was weird moments, like the day I came home and I just had a sister. Like, no one was fucking pregnant. You know, nobody was saying there was kids on the way. I was like the 70s. So I just came home and there was a baby in the cot. And I was like, who's that? And my dad says, that's your sister. And that was it. <laughs> End the conversation. So, <laughs> you know. And you struggled with, uh, with stage fright for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I always did. Yeah, yeah. always did. I always found getting on stage. This is fine. I don't know. Like, this is totally different. I, when I'm sitting here talking to you. There's a... Like, Everyone is sound, though. Yeah, <laughs> but everyone is sound. Even when you're doing stand-up, you know they're on your side. But yeah, I just could never get it out of my head. I was like, these people are after paying 30 quid in, uh, and then if I, I, I'm going to be the one who's ruining their weekend or whatever, you know. I couldn't get it. I just the weight of it, I couldn't shake it, you know. Or, a bit, or the fear of being found out or thinking, you know, I'm going to come yeah. out here, I'm going to do a shit gig, and then I'm going to feel exactly how you should feel because you're shit, you know, that yeah. sort of crap goes on in your head so I was always had bad stage fright it's not stage fright it's fucking anxiety I did a whole documentary called stage fright but it's actually anxiety it was, it was anxiety yeah, yeah that's what it is you know but public speaking is terrifying anyway so for me and and this room in particular is actually quite fucking special to me because like I was riddled with anxiety like when I got expelled from school in that period afterwards <clears throat> I went agoraphobic couldn't leave the gaff Right, for a good while, full on. And then there was a band playing here in Vicker Street, and this was nearly fucking 20 years ago, called The Flaming Lips, and I loved them. I fucking loved them. And my brother just said to me, I know you haven't left your room in six fucking months, but do you want to go to Dublin and see this fucking gig? And art was the only thing for me, like the love of music was the only thing that could allow me to transcend the terror inside me. So I just said to myself, these cunts are from fucking America, and if I don't see them, I might never see them. So my brother brought me up here. It, was a, it took about six hours to drive to Dublin because I was puking out the side of the car with the, riddled with the anxiety so much. And my fear was like just being in a crowd. That, that I couldn't do it. I was going, where are the exits? And I was over there down at the very end, clo as close as possible to the sound desk, and for the fucking 90 minutes of the gig, I didn't have anxiety because the show was so amazing. And I always remember that because I'd get stage fright as well and I'd think, fuck it, what if I'm not able to go out? But then I remind myself, I was there over in that fucking corner a long time ago puking with anxiety and now I'm here up on stage and it's grand. I conquered it, it's fine, it's done. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, I do know what you mean and it's great to do it and everything, but for some reason you can get stuck in a loop, you know? Yeah. Like, sometimes you, you have that experience and it gets you so far, but to put yourself in... Ex would you put yourself 
in that exact position again, you know, like if you, it, it, you'd have, it would be the same fight all over again, you know. Have you ever not done a gig because of it? No, no. You always go I through always, it. Yeah, yeah, always went through with it, yeah. yeah. And then immediately after the gig, do you get the feeling of, that wasn't so bad? So, uh, 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 when I was touring all the time, whoever was doing support, I'd say to them, this is the last joke I'm going to do with the night. Mm-hmm. And I'd tell them what the joke was going to be. And then I'd ask them to pull the car up to the stage door. And I'd tell the joke and fucking run off the stage and get into the car and be the first out of the venue every night. <laughs> every night. I had to put space between me and the venue before I could relax. Wow. Every night I'd do it. You know, so that was just, that was the only way. I had to get out. I had to run. And then down the road, like, you know, you know I'd, I'd start to calm down and think, oh, fuck, okay, that's grand. It went well and not so bad. And you get home in one piece. And then, you know, the adrenaline starts to wear off. You get hungry and, you know, but that was and every single night that would happen. The like, thing is, because, like, I, I'm not, I'm similar. Do, do people's positive comments ever make a difference to you? Like, if you're going out there and people are clearly going, I enjoyed that, I'm clapping. And then afterwards, they're on fucking the internet going, that was a great gig. Thanks for that, PJ. That was money well spent. I had a great night. Yeah. Does that external words ever reach into you into, to quench that anxiety, or is it too deep? I think it's too deep. And I think what will happen is you'll start, if you start believing all that good, you're going to believe the one bad, you know? Like, you're, yeah. you're, 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 you have, like people have an amazing ability. You can stand in Vicar Street here, 1,100 people can be laughing their arses off and there'll be yeah. one cunt up the front staring at you. <laughs> and you will remember his face for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, you're like you've literally a thousand people going, fuck, that was brilliant, best show I've ever seen, amazing. And all you'll see is that wanker, fucking fuck you, you know. Like, you just, and, and you'll think he's right. He, he's the one that's right. They're all mad, you know. They don't know what they're talking. They're on fucking cocaine or something. But he's right, you know. I and don't know what that is. I don't know why we do that, but everybody does, I it's, think. It's our opinion of ourselves. It's like, it's what you were saying earlier. Like, if your self-esteem isn't fucking great, and if your internal voice wants to say, I'm going to get found out, this is shit, my whole career has been an accident, which is shit I deal with as well. For me, like the journey that I'm on, I, I have to learn how to hug me as a child. <laughs> yeah. Do you get me? Oh, yeah. Like I, I, and, and it's fucking tough. I need to, f- and I haven't figured out how to do it yet. I need to give that child, who I now know was fucking autistic, who was being called a piece of shit every day, to give him the hug that he fucking needs. And the problem is, is I'm, st- I'm trying to fucking do it in the wrong way. And sometimes I try to do it with external praise. Yeah. And it's what drives me. And it's like, maybe if I write a fucking best-selling book, maybe then he's okay. Maybe if all of these fucking... And it's not. But you'll always find an excuse. Like, yeah. I remember doing therapy once, and, you know, the therapist, like, it's so stupid, but you just find a way not to believe it, you know? And yeah. she was like, look, and she goes, there's a kid out, outside the window with her mother. And she goes, see that kid? That kid, the size of her, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that, that child, if... if if she came in and told the stories you told her, no, you know, mm-hmm. how would you feel? And I just remember thinking, sure, that's a girl. Like, I'm not a girl. <laughs> like, 
You're like, you straight away discounted it. You're like, no, that's a girl. Be different. No, but stupid. the therapist was trying to get that's you a, to... I'm not, I'm not a girl. Like, I don't know the difference. Yeah. She was trying to make that kid young PJ. Yeah, she, she was, was trying to get, yeah. And yeah. straight away I was going, no, I'm not buying a fuck off. Like, <laughs> no, no, you know, you just don't... It's, so it is really hard. You have to, like, I don't know. You kind of, you have, But it has to be you that does it, you know. It has you to be. You, you don't believe anyone outside. else. You can't. It, it has to... Um, I haven't fucking figured it out. <laughs> I'm not nowhere near it, but I mean, I'm just fucking managing it. Um, I think you can all have a little pint now. <laughs> it's nine o'clock. You can all have a little pint. And you're a Tuesday night crowd. You don't seem too hungry for pints, are you? Who's, ha- who's having one? Wow, that's like 40% of the audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll be back on in about 15 minutes with more merriment and crack. <laughs> Time now for a small little, time now for a small little ocarina pause, even though I don't have the ocarina with me. What I do have, I have a collection of short stories by the South American writer George Louis Borges. Um, and I'm going to flick the pages of this one, an advert place. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You hear that? Magical realism at a thousand miles an hour. That was the f- flicking the pages of a George Louis Barhey short story collection pause. You'd have heard an advert for something. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you like this podcast, if you enjoy it, if it brings you solace and joy, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. Because the person who is a patron is paying for you to listen for free. So Everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. And if you're enjoying this particular episode, this is the type of fun that we have at my live podcasts. This is the type of enjoyable merriment that goes on. So I do have some live podcasts in 2023, if you're interested in coming along. On 21st of January, I'm in Waterford, in the Theatre Royal. February, in the Cork Opera House on the 15th of February. March, I'm in the Waterfront in Belfast on the 4th of March. Then... Wednesday the 22nd and 24th of March 
I am in Vicker Street, which is where this podcast that you're listening to was recorded. My Vicker Street gigs are unbelievable crack. I do about six Vicker Street gigs a year. I just fucking love the place. It's a wonderful room. And I have my podcasts midweek because... I don't know, there's a different energy, there's a different energy midweek. It's like going to the theatre or going to the cinema. So, those two gigs in March, it's a Wednesday and a Friday. So, Wednesday the 22nd and Friday the 24th. The Wednesday, I don't know, Fridays would be a tiny bit more chaotic. Tiny bit more chaotic because people are having one or two little drinky poos. And then Wednesday is although this podcast is quite fucking chaotic and I think that was a Tuesday night come to whatever one you want alright and then I'm in Canada in Vancouver and, and Toronto in, in April is it oh in Drahada on April the 1st alright come to those gigs if you want you can look for the tickets on Google if you don't want to that's fine as well you can do something else with your time the fucking uh, the pre <laughs> the mid show music there Oh yeah, no, I said to the sound man, I said, just pick one of my playlists, one of the Rubber Bandits playlists, but I think he picked the the new Jack Swing playlist. So for about 20 minutes there, it sounded like the ending credits of an Eddie Murphy film. (laughs) Um, What were we chatting, we were chatting backstage about uh, just the the difference in the, the comedy industry, like, I mean... I, like, you were lucky in that you, you got into TV comedy just at the end of the golden age yes. when this was something you could fucking earn a living out of it. And then I got into it at the end of that, but I didn't know. Like, I got into RTE in two, 2010, but I didn't know everything was falling to shit yeah. and that being on television meant nothing. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah, there was that. I know, there was that time when there was very few stand-ups and a lot of opportunity, I suppose, you know, that was happening because all of a sudden, you know, Dez did his thing and his show went really well and then... And you had DVDs. And you had DVDs, fucking DVDs. That you people used to earn a living from DVDs. Oh, yeah, I, like, Jesus, the, I made more money out of a DVD one year than I did out of all my gigs and I remember standing in HMV one day, you know, and uh, this woman was in front of me in the, cl- in the queue. And she had like a Neil Delamere DVD, a Darrow Breen DVD, and she had my DVD. And uh, then <laughs> someone came over and says, oh, I found the one you were looking for. And it was Dez's. And they went, oh, brilliant. I put that one back and it was mine. It was their fuck's sake. I almost took pride in myself there for a minute. Like, uh, but but Dez, Dez lives in the Hamptons because of DVDs from the mid 2000s. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, there was big money to be made. Like there Universal was. came over from London and started signing lads and like the great deals and like that. What they were signing people who hadn't done anything yet on the off chance they would make a DVD. You know yeah. that when if you ever did get to that stage, they you would guarantee to do it with them. Like there was a time there, there was a a lot of money going around. You know, I think yeah. we probably didn't know. How good we had it at the and time. And it was going to end very suddenly. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. <laughs> just that, I always, because when I think of the Celtic Tiger, I just think of fucking pink shorts, very large boot cut jeans, pointy blue, pointy brown shoes, and a DVD under each arm. Yeah. A Des Bishop <laughs> DVD under each arm, and then a Paddy Casey CD in your collar. <laughs> Breastfeeding a pint of Bulmers. <laughs> um... 
I don't know how to say this. So you recently spent some time in a mental hospital. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was in uh, the week before, or two weeks before Christmas, I went in last year, and uh, I got out on the last day of February. So I think it was so 11 how long weeks. Was it? 11 weeks? Uh, yeah, 11 in weeks. In St. Pat's? In St. Pat's, yeah. Which was... Uh, not something I ever thought was going to happen, you know, because uh, I'd never, I just had, we were saying, you know, no one says a nervous breakdown anymore. But, but also, like, you, they did, people didn't go to mental hospitals, they went to your house. Yeah, well, that's true, yeah. <laughs> of all people, they end up like, oh, <laughs> I'm just glad they didn't send me back to someone else's house. Uh, <laughs> 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 and suddenly I'm the guy, you know, your man that walks around the street. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so I suppose I had a proper... I, I, I don't even really know how or why it happened, to be honest. It was just, there was no but real... nervous re breakdown is the word that works for you. For me, those are, yeah. that's the word. Other people would say that's not for them, but for me, those are the words that work for... for that's, I don't know, if it's a generational thing or whatever, but it was getting worse. It was from maybe the end of the summer last year. Mm -hmm. I went with my partner down to Cork, and then I just started getting very... Uh, a lot of anxiety about everything. Mm -hmm. Like on stupid fucking things, things that like you know, oh, I'm gonna lose my job, but like just crazy things that no basis, but just really fixated on it, you know, and getting worse and worse and worse. And she was doing everything she could to keep me active, and and then uh, I was slowly just de developing. And then I was with me, uh, me ex-wife. We were walking through the Phoenix Park, and thankfully, we've when we broke up, we stayed best of mates and all mm -hmm. that stuff. And. Uh, I don't know how to explain it or what happened, but the world collapsed. And I mean, the world collapsed. I fell to my knees. Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking about just, that was it. Just couldn't function anymore. From that point, I just couldn't function. I was turning up to work in Nova, going in every single morning, completely detached, couldn't mm -hmm. find the joy in anything, stopped, lacked all spontaneity, wasn't able to engage in conversation. I was trying to just live day to day. Then it started to become hour to hour, then it was moment to moment, then second to second. Mm -hmm. And got to the point where everyone around me and the psychiatrists and everyone was saying, you have to go to hospital because we I was on so much sedatives, you know, and that was just to try and slow my thoughts rather than mm -hmm. anything else. You know, they weren't making me better. They were just like, you know, stopping me, harming myself or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was on so much sedatives that then... I, I was just wasn't myself at all anyway, you know, completely lethargic, started to kick in, and oh, fucking... And for, for some reason, to me, going to hospital was the worst thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that... Well, I don't know what I expected it to be or what I expected to happen, but for me, the, the, the sickness and me going whatever direction that was leading me, going to hospital was the worst thing. That, mm -hmm. I, I thought if I went in there, I'm never getting out. Like, mm -hmm. all my worst fears are going to be confirmed. Maybe one day I'll be able to not feel like this, but if I go in there, I'll never get out. And uh, eventually I just got so sick that it didn't matter anymore. So and did you make that choice? Did you choose or did someone have to bring you there? No, I made the choice, yeah. Eventually yeah. I just thought it doesn't matter anymore. Like, it can't get worse than this. And I, I, I said it to uh, um, my friend Stephanie Preisner. I just woke up one day and went, I just, this is it. I can't deal with this. And Stephanie was, I woke up and she'd left a message on my phone. Mm -hmm. And the message just said, call me anytime. No time is too late. No time mm -hmm. is too early. I'm always here for you, pal. And I called her at four o'clock in the morning and then we went out for the drive and I accepted I had to go to the hospital. And mm -hmm. um, my ex, Mrs. Uh, Lane, she was, you know, delighted for it to happen. And my partner at the time, Ashling, then, we had a, a, like a 10-day wait to get a bed. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember she took me for breakfast on that morning that I was going in. And I was like, this is like my last breakfast. She goes, it's not your fucking last anything. Like, <laughs> this is, you know, you're going to have lunch now in fucking three hours. Like, <laughs> it, just won't, it just won't be fucking here, you know. She was constantly trying to make, you know, like, she was always saying, like, this is, like, I know it sounds terrible because you can't believe it, you know, because depression tells you it's so real and everyone else is the problem, you know. Depression tells you everyone else is fucking wrong, that you're the only one that can see how fucked up everything is. And that's even more frustrating, yeah. you know. And she was always just trying to say, like, you're going to wake up tomorrow. You're going like, to have lunch later, you know. You'll be in hospital, but you'll have lunch, you know. You're gonna f-. And uh, she took me in, and, and that, was the, that day was just so surreal because it was in the middle of COVID, you know, or mm-hmm. not in the middle of COVID, just coming to the end of COVID, really, I suppose. So you're in a room, and, and you're just sitting there for four or five hours, I think it was, while you're waiting for your test to come through, and... Then they bring it onto the ward, and, and going onto the ward was... Oh, I remember getting a fright at the start, because this woman ran up and gave me rosary beads. I was like, what the fuck is this place? <laughs> but but it was, they brought me into the little room, you know, and this room was going to be my home for what I thought was four weeks tops. Like, that was... I went to my boss in Nova. I was there. It's four weeks tops. It won't be longer than that. I don't know what I was thinking, like, four weeks. They would have told me aunt to get me in there, I suppose. And then... Uh, I was in this room and so surreal and like didn't know what to do, didn't know what to think. Like the, it felt like a cell to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Little did I know that would become the only place in the world I'd feel safe in within a matter of two weeks, three weeks, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and w- walked out into the common area because there's just this area where the other you're not supposed to call them patients, service users is what they call mm-hmm. them. I always saw myself as a patient. I didn't know what's so wrong with that word, but so I saw the other patients there and. One of them, uh, this amazing woman, she just came over and says, you look a bit stunned, I'm going to show you around, you know. And uh, she started showing me around the hospital and I got talking to her. And we became quite close when we were in the hospital then. I suppose you do. And the weird thing about being in the hospital is everybody gets it. That's mm-hmm. what I loved about it straight away. Everybody gets it. So you could go over to someone and say, how are you? And they just stand up and walk away and you go, that's grand. You know, just <laughs> like, <laughs> it's fucking grand, you know, like... <laughs> I'm not in the mood. I get it. We're in fucking hospital. <laughs> so, but what's lovely so, about that is that the pressures of society... It's gone. ...is fucking gone. It's fucking gone. So you can relax. It's fucking gone. And then this, after a couple of weeks, I started not feeling anything. You know, there's this weird patch of recovery where you don't feel bad, you don't feel good. You're just sort of observing everything going on. And, and then I started feeling really good you know started really mm-hmm. like in, after about two months i'm starting to feel myself real confident but only good in that environment the thoughts yeah. of leaving was terrifying then so i was like oh i love this place like function here i play bingo every fucking day and you know i won a face cloth in a mars bar yesterday and you know fucking tomorrow we're going on a guided walk of the fucking kilmainham hospital and you know and all this stuff you think because one woman told me said one day in here you're gonna win a face cloth and think it's the best day of your life. Like, I was like, literally going, I can't fucking take this shit anymore. <laughs> and sure enough, I won a fucking face class, and I was like, yes, you bastards! So, so like, and then you win toothpaste, and you're all upset, you fucking have toothpaste. You know, just, so this hospital environment starts, it starts, it becomes a real community, you know? You get to know other people on the wards, and you meet for coffee, and you walk the garden together, and you do activities together, you find out what you're into, you go to sound meditation and laugh your bollocks off because someone bangs a cymbal behind your ears, whatever the fuck it is, you know? And, and I got to this, it genuinely got to a point where Jim that I was working with, you know, he was much more stressed outside the hospital doing the radio show than I was in the hospital. 
you know, so he was ringing me going, what the fuck do you want me to tell people? Because I was still covering it up, you know. I was like, oh, I don't know, just tell them I'm You just working. dipped off the air and people are like, where's I, PJ? I just went missing off the air for three months, you know, just completely and what, went missing. And what was your thinking at the time where you're like, like you didn't want to tell the radio listeners he's gone into St. Pat's? Yeah, I was obsessed with the cover-up because, I don't know, like, this, like I, this is the one thing that I, I sort of took out of it was, uh, you know, people talk about mental health. Mental health is yeah. this big thing, and you know, it's great. Go walk and eat a fucking salad. You know, talk to your mates. Yeah, uh, I didn't have mental health problems. I was severely mentally ill. You yeah. know, I was mentally ill. You know, mm-hmm. so it wasn't anything I could do for mental health. Like I, I needed twenty-four hour round the clock. You didn't ring Brezzy. You didn't ring Brezzy, or no, I didn't ring Brezzy. I didn't ring Brezzy. No, no. no. <laughs> Yeah, sitting in the hospital. Someone get me the fucking brezzies. I need, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, I need to hear some music. But uh, like, so I was like, I was critically ill, you know, mm-hmm. really properly ill. And and uh, then and there's that period they have to take you off the sedatives, and then if to get you on a drug that suits you, and then when they give you the drug first, just it has side effects, and you have to see if they go away. It's a long process, you know. It takes time and yeah, like why, why two months? Uh, well, I thought it was four weeks, and then I was in for four weeks, and they said, uh, I don't remember after four weeks, I knew I didn't want to go. And yeah. then six weeks, I thought, maybe I'm ready to go, and this is, they went, you're fucking no. <laughs> but you could have if you wanted to, but they're yeah, going, we think this is a bad idea. Yeah, but in fairness, you get, you really, I really got to trust the team I had, you know? Yeah. Like, you've got a whole team, of, it's the, I've never had it in my life, you know, you have a whole team of people, you have three doctors, uh, uh, like, a whole ward full of nurses, you've got your other, the other patients that are with you, you know, and you've got then the counsellors, the therapists, the pharmacists, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody really gives a fuck about you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that's why it's terrifying leaving, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're back home on your own and it's just a phone call every day, you know. Because uh, how much of that process too was... Obviously, you're getting this class treatment, but just knowing, holy fuck, look at all these people whose job it is to care. Yeah, I, I, I remember um, uh, my ex, she had cancer, you know, and she, she was, uh, she got, she beat it and all, she's brilliant, she's 100%, she's in great form and fettle. And I remember her saying, wait till you see what it's like to have a whole team of fuckers working on you. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what? She goes, I'm fucking telling you. She goes, wait till you, wait till you see when you walk into a room where there are six people and they all they want to do is make you better. And I just remember thinking, you fucking cancer, you maniac, you know? But like, then I went in and I, I had that exact feel and she, she came to visit me and she goes, great, isn't it? I went, it, it kind of is, you know? <laughs> it actually, it kind of is, you know? Uh, and and I, I'm very aware that I'm, I, I was, I'm very privileged to have had that experience because I had health insurance and I nearly mm-hmm. cancelled it like mm-hmm. the year before because I realised I was paying for fucking child psychology and all this. I don't have fucking kids. I have two dogs. You know, I had all these things on the policy I didn't need. Uh, so I nearly cancelled it and thankfully I didn't. So that's why I got that care. You know, mm-hmm. like so many people just can't. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm very aware of that. You know, I was just very, very lucky I could, you know, I was able to get that's, it. That's one of the things one of the difficulties with speaking about fucking mental health in this country and one, one of the reasons why, you know, the phrases you mentioned earlier, oh, just go for a run, or for me, it's like, just open up and just talk. Like, I, I feel like a prick saying just open up and talk to somebody when they can't access services. It's yeah. like, the thing is with, if, when you're in the throes of a lot of shit, 
opening up and talking to a friend is very useful, right? Because it's a bit like turning on a tap. But I'm not going to tell someone to turn on their tap if they can't ring a plumber. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's yeah. where we're at in this country. It's like, open up to your friends now and tell them about your depression and anxiety. Great. Now what do I do? That'll be six months. Six months of fucking waiting. If you're fucking lucky. If you're fucking yeah, lucky. Up to so two years, some people wait, you it's, know. It's a difficult people conversation. People don't make it, you know, like that long. So no. it's, 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 yeah, it's a very difficult conversation. And because the people who are that sick, they find it very hard to speak up for themselves, you know. And also the other thing I had was the three people I'm closest to in the world are women. Mm -hmm. And that makes a difference, you mm -hmm. know. Like, because I had, like, uh, my ex-wife, my partner, and Stephanie, my best mate, and, like, women won't take no for an answer. Women mm -hmm. know how to mm -hmm. communicate. You know, mm -hmm. women don't just look for a solution. It's like, you, you know, like, here's, w women know how to listen. And I, I, like, I know men, some men do too, but my mates didn't, like. My, well, it's not I, part of our I, culture. I, I, went, I got out of the hospital and I went to the pub, right, the week before, uh, I, went, I did the late late, and I was sitting there with the lads and I was listening, I want you to know, um, before it comes out, I was in hospital for, you know, nearly three months at the start of the year. They all went, oh yeah, we know, yeah. I was there, how long have you known? Oh, we always knew. Lad seen you in there and told us months ago. I was there, well, why didn't you fucking say anything? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, why didn't you text you, me? Why didn't you say it? Like, uh, so it just shows, like, even though they knew, nobody brought it up, no one said it, and everyone just tipped along. Like, I don't know, like, if I broke a finger, people would say, if you, if you have a sling, you get, your head is done in, people go, what happened, what happened, what happened? You go to the hospital for mental illness, and it's just, people still don't want to talk about it, you know? And that's and, the thing, that's, that's a metaphor that I fucking use frequently when speaking about mental health conversations is everyone knows what it's like to break your fucking leg and get a cast. What happens? Your phone, like, maybe not as an adult, but when you're younger, it's like, can I sign it? Can I draw a Mickey on it? <laughs> yeah. But it's this beautiful, healthy celebration of someone's injury. Yeah. And then it's like, I've got anxiety, I've got depression, and people go quiet. Yeah. And that's why, too couple of reasons that I wanted you on tonight. Obviously, we had a great chat before and it didn't record. The second one is... The second one is... I, I don't think the space exists in TV and radio right now to have a decent mental health conversation. And it's no critique of the presenters. It's just the fucking format. I've, I'd often get a phone call and news talk or whatever. Will you come on and talk about anxiety? And it's like, how long have you got? Seven minutes. No, I will in my fucking hope. I, I will not because I can't talk about anxiety for seven minutes yeah. without reducing it to... Um, I have to fucking reduce it to bullet points and platitudes. And what's going to end up happening is phrases like just talk, be kind. You're going to end up seeing them on pillows and TK Maxx. Yeah, it, it, when you live, hear laugh, it, love, it means fuck all. It means you. fucking yeah. nothing. We lose the meaning of it, and the traditional media space can't provide space for these conversations. A podcast can. You can actually speak about emotions. Like tonight, you spoke about your childhood, so you've got valuable context. The other thing too, I knew that I could bring you on talk about something like mental fucking illness and we could both laugh about it it's so while important. still caring about it. It's so important to laugh at it. The, the lads I've been speaking to that have like, the curiosity in lads now is, is totally different, you know? And mm -hmm. they last, and people aren't afraid to, because I laugh about it now. 
They're not afraid to ask stupid questions. Yeah. And that's... And you have to ask stupid questions. You I, was, I was in the pub the other day and a fella goes, so you know when you were in the hospital and all, was there like fellas that thought they were sonic hedgehogs and all? He goes, I was like, that's not what the fuck it is. Was, but there's no fucking sonic hedgehog people in there. They're normal fucking people who need a bit of help for a few weeks. So like, but like that stupid fucking question... Was needed it, to be asked. And we had a great laugh, and then now we're, now we're in it, you know. We're, mm-hmm. we're in those conversations. They call me Randolph McMurphy down the pub now, which is the guy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, <laughs> and like, they're all like, here's fucking Randolph. Look at him. If he's not swinging, he's depressing. You know, it's all, and like, what do you, do you want to point, you depressing cunt? I was <laughs> like, and like, it's all these things, but because I know these people, and that's, that's kind of how we start talking about it. And like, that's the signing of the cast. It, that's the sign. That is it. That is the signing of the cast, you know? It really is. Uh, yeah. Lads who, we, they were totally ignoring it, and then, and it's not so much even slagging, but it's just being able to make light of it so that you can keep the conversation going, you know? Take the weight out of it, I suppose. It, it, I think it's very important anyway. I, re- I really do. You know, I, like, if it wasn't for the lads I was talking to who, like... Take, and even now, some people go and say, your fucking missus regrets doing that to help you, does she? Like, like whatever. <laughs> like, but it, it's just fine. You know, I, you need to, if you don't laugh, you're really fucked, you know? And outside of, uh, like, another thing too, like, because you said to me backstage that uh, you feel that medication really works for you more so than therapy. It does, for, for me it does, yeah. And that's a totally grand, that's a fine thing to say. Yeah. Because the thing is, like the with mental health treatment, it's everyone has fucking unique needs and everyone is a unique person. So whatever the fuck works for that person is right for that person. So, I mean, throwing pills at everybody, that's obviously not going to work because everyone's different. But in the same way, throwing CBT at everybody is yeah. also fucking bad. You have to have things that meet the individual needs of the ind- individual people. And uh, I also get to feel some control by taking the medication. You yeah. know, I'll fill out my thing and I go, right, that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like, I mean, week, I see it. I feel like I'm managing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of, we spent so long getting it right, you know, I feel like it, there's an achievement to it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there's, there's that as well, you know? Like, so it's, if that's what, that was what worked for me. That was focusing on that really worked for me. And, and drugs work, you know? Yeah. And, and now I just have to be careful. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. I'll never be that sick again. That's, that's the great thing I took. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to say that out loud. Because yeah, I know what to do. I know what to fucking do now, you know? Yeah. When I, and it's happened. I had a bad day. It's actually kind of funny because I had a bad day and straight away, it was the first bad day I had since I got out of the hospital. Well, here we go again. I'm spiraling. I'm going to end up in another three months, whatever. And then, you know... An hour later, I was like, I'm sorry to have worried everybody, I'm actually fine. <laughs> I think I just had a fucking wobble there. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, like, <laughs> Stephanie's on the phone, fuck you, you know, like, <laughs> don't fucking do that to me, you know. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's it. <laughs> Outside of, um, we'll say, managing your medication, right? What also works for you? And I'm talking like, I know, going to the gym or you love your motorbike. For me, yeah, I've seen you on fishing videos on YouTube. <laughs> very, very fucking odd fishing videos, man. Yeah. I, I was on YouTube once at four in the morning, right? <laughs> and like, I'm going, I don't know what I was doing. I was going down a fishing hole because that's what I needed to do then. And I see this cunt, like, in, 
fishing eels out of a wall. And the thing was, it wasn't even PJ Gallagher goes fishing. It's like just a fishing video on the, on the daughter. <laughs> and he's dragging eels out of a wall and it doesn't even credit him. And I, I was like, I'm after smoking too much hash. Yeah. The fuck? Actually, what the fuck was that about? Why the fuck is there a video from 2011 online of you dragging an eel out of a wall? I, I was... <laughs> I was doing a documentary with Francis Barrett at the time uh, about travellers and all that. Francis wanted to do a documentary about travellers and he asked if we would do it with him because Scratch, scratch Productions and uh, one of the days the lads wanted to go fishing uh, and I ended up up to me bollocks some water pulling them eels out of a wall uh, which I didn't know was actually illegal until after we'd done it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was like, oh, this is great, you know, like, and they were showing me how to catch the eel, and, they were, and then we, the video went up on YouTube, and then we got a letter from, I can't remember, some fisheries border saying something, that's fucking illegal, like, so we were like, all right, whatever. Uh, yeah, so I don't, like, yeah. The, it's not know. a regular thing, you know. Not a regular, it's the only time I've ever been fishing in my life, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and what about um, exercise? Yeah, I, I, yeah, what else works for me? I don't know, for me... Now it's the, the openness really works for me mm-hmm. because uh, I immediately know there's people that can look after me. Mm-hmm. The knowing that I can access the hospital is a great relief. Um, mm-hmm. Not being afraid to pick up the phone to the doctor, the psychiatrist, whatever. I just know what to do now. You mm-hmm. know, I know what to do. So when I feel it slip, or if I felt it slip, uh, like I'll be on it immediately. Mm-hmm. Like months, man. I was really, really fucking sick for months and just getting up and hoping it would go away. Mm-hmm. And turning up to and work. everyone told me it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it got worse and worse. And the doctors were telling me it wouldn't. And like, I'm paying the doctor to give me advice. He says, go to the hospital. I'm like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I go back the week <laughs> after. You know, and, and then it was at the stage where he had to ring me every two days. You know, checking in. You know, just resisting it. Just resisting it. I, don't, I, I can't tell you what that is. I don't know what it was. I, it wasn't pride. I don't know. It wasn't... I just don't know what it was. I just... Like, mental illness just tells you, don't fucking do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. If you do anything, it's going to get worse. That's the weird place you get into. No matter what I do from this point, it's going to get worse, you know? Caged in, zombie apocalypse, they're all around the house. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get out of this, but maybe I can just stay here and exist for a while. You know, like, and what, what, what was the effort of fucking having to show up to a radio show every morning and be, be a breakfast radio presenter, which is an, an exceptional amount of enthusiasm required for that fucking job? It was horrible. Like, if, you, if anyone that listens to the show now and listen to it back then, if you were to listen back to those shows now, you'd hear it. All I'm doing is just agreeing with Jim. Was he anyone coming in from above going, what the fuck Yeah, you Yeah, no, they did. And Nova handled it perfectly. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they couldn't have handled it better. Like, really perfectly. So, uh, whisper started, there's something wrong with PJ. There's something wrong. He's not himself, you know. Um, Any listeners texting in? No, that didn't happen. Uh, but people who saw me knew. And other presenters from other shows were like, what the fuck is going on, you know? And uh, eventually it got to the stage, and this was the hardest thing for me out of the whole bit was to go into, because I thought if I lose this job, I'm, this is the only work I have left in the whole world is this job. That's what I thought. Um, was the theme of some of your anxious thoughts, uh, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my over house. Over and over and I'm going to be homeless. Homeless, I'm going to be homeless, I'm gonna, I won't be able to feed myself, I'm, yeah, my mom's going to be destitute, I won't be able to pay bills, I won't, I'm going to be nothing, I'm going to be, you know, just yeah. wait, like couldn't stop it coming and coming yeah, and coming yeah, yeah. over and over and over and over again 
And then you tell yourself, well, what the fuck? There's nothing wrong with you. You're Were you sleeping? You, uh, only because I was on sedatives. Okay. To be honest. But the, um, when you yeah. woke up, did you suddenly get... You wake up and you get, terror. honestly, two seconds in your day. Yeah. And I mean two seconds in your day. It's weird where you forget. And then all of a sudden you feel it coming down to you again. That's like, the worst. No, and like, that's the worst. Those mornings were the fucking worst. The fucking worst. They were awful. Like just getting up, getting out. Because I can relate to that. Like I, I di- obviously didn't have it to that extent, but I, I, I had severe anxiety over the pandemic, but similar, just not to that extent. But the little two seconds of clarity, not, not clarity, the little two, you wake up and you have two seconds of... Your brain doesn't tell you that shit is bad. Yeah. And it, it, when your brain kicks in with the anxiety and the adrenaline, those two seconds of, of calm and clarity feel cruel. Oh. I'd rather not have them. Oh, I'd I, rather just wake straight up with the terror be much than, than, to rem, than to know what it's like to not have it. Yeah. It, it is. That really is it. Like, it's like just starting all over again every day. No one, mm-hmm. oh, here the fucking is again. Mm-hmm. And then try, looking forward to the end of the day because at least you'll be asleep. Yeah. You know, you can take a sleeping tablet and you can take a sedative and you can put your head down and you can turn on some bullshit on the laptop and eventually you'll pass out, mm-hmm. you know. And that, that's the only thing you have to look forward to, you mm-hmm. know. That's, that's it. Which is a very short-term solution. Yeah, well, yeah, because you close your eyes and... You, it feels like you've opened them up again the second later. Like, yeah. so, so that's, that's... Oh, of course, it, that's not real sleep. It's not like going really, under yeah, with it's anesthetic. It's like a, a fucking yeah. light switch, you know? Like, yeah. you can take sedatives and look out the window and just go daytime, nighttime, daytime, nighttime, you know? Uh, so there's all of that, like... And then, uh, uh, so... I'm just not believing that you can really get that much better. You know, asking yourself stupid questions. How am I going to live like this? What can I do to stay like this, you know? And were you that's, given a diagnosis? Uh, yeah, recurrent depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. So it will come again, but it will never be as bad. It's be totally manageable mm-hmm. now. Uh, and and the, the next time when it does, you've a set of tools that you didn't have the last. Yeah, the, totally. The yeah, time. and I also have a bunch of people who will be around me and slag the arse off, whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know it's going to be all right. You but know? that belief and hope and understanding is fucking huge as well. Oh yeah, oh, to know that it's every, it's, it, it means that weirdly, this has been the best year of my life. Mm-hmm. Because when you come out of that hospital and you realise you can look after yourself and everything you were thinking for months and months and months what, it is fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. You smell the air different. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you smell... like To the point that I was so happy, my ex-wife goes, will you go in and ask him if you're having a fucking manic episode? Because I've never seen you this happy. <laughs> she was like, I've never seen you this happy. There's something wrong. <laughs> and I just thought she was right. I went in and said, do you think... And he's, no, he's, no, you're just... You're just enjoying yourself, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're just, he's like, you're just in a good mood, you know. You're, you're not spending crazy amounts of money. You're not going out and doing drugs. And like none of the signs of a manic episode. It's just okay, yeah. in a good mood, you know. You're just enjoying just life. Just enjoying life. And this year has been the best because it's just been the fucking best, you know. Like having, hanging out with mates and whore and hanging out with uh, new partner Kelly and all. It's just been amazing. It's just been fucking amazing, you know. It feels and like nothing can go wrong. Now I'm really fucked. <laughs> but on top of I'll it all... i probably fall off my fucking bike going home. <laughs> on top of it all, PJ, you're doing a wonderful service because, like, it's great to have people speaking about mental health issues and I speak about mental health issues, but, like, you need people talking about fucking mental illness. Yeah, mental illness, men, yeah. You need people talking about... It's not, it's not just, I feel sad today, go for a fucking run. It's like, my, no, I'm mad. <laughs> 
that is it though. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with a lot of the patients. We have a WhatsApp group. And, and we do these like loony lunches, you know? So we meet up. And like we're all different ages. And I mean like from 17 to fucking 60. Do you know what I mean? And we're always sitting there going, this looks like we're some sort of fucking cult or something. Like there's definitely, the staff are going, how did they meet? Like, what, what, what have they got in common? You know? Uh, and and that is it, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't know. It, it, but did the therapists ever put any, surely they investigated thoroughly into, you, you had a unique childhood, you grew up with, around people with severe mental illness. Did, yeah, did they investigate into that and go, well, not so much, learned behaviour? or uh, Not so much because it was crisis management, so it wasn't like what's happened in the past. Yeah. The therapist I had at the start, she was amazing. Like, she just goes, this is going to sound ridiculous, but we're going to just sit here doing breathing exercises. Yeah. You're going to have to learn to breathe again. Yeah. Like, learn to breathe. Because like, I'm guessing your breathing was very shallow, you, quick you breaths. You don't think about it, but no. you, I had forgotten how to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds fucking mental, but I did. So like, she was amazing. She goes, we're going to teach you how to breathe. We're going to go through these exercises. You're going to find ones that work, and you're going to find ones that don't work. I'm just asking you not to write off the ones that don't work to say that this whole stuff is bullshit. Like, and how we'll did find you... something that works, you know? How, wait, wait, like... Because I've had, I've had psychologists on before speaking about the benefits of breathing. And for me, like when I, when I had really bad anxiety, when I learned how to fucking breathe, specifically from my diaphragm, I was yeah. like, holy shit, man, there's, there's free drugs. Yeah. And, it, and it's in my lungs. Uh, uh, like yeah. my anxiety went from 10 to 6 or to 5 simply by allowing enough oxygen into my body. Because when you're really fucking anxious, it's all the breathing is from about there up. And you're not getting that oxygen. And then all the fucking anxiety chemicals in your body are going nuts. So how did you feel after that first breathing well, session? It took me a while to find one that worked for me. So there was, there's different ones. So there's imagery stuff. You know, mm -hmm. you imagine leaves going down a river mm -hmm. and your thoughts are on the, that didn't work for me. And then you imagine like the sort of perfect place ones mm -hmm. and that, or safe space ones. Uh, and that didn't work for me because I was actually in the fucking place I thought was safe. So it didn't relate, yeah. you know. My little room was the safest place in the world. And then there's this one, a body scan, you know. Yeah. And you do this 15-minute body scan. And I thought, oh, no. And I swear to God, the first time I did it, I, it felt like it was 30 seconds long. Mm -hmm. And I just was like the, a light walking on air. Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck, that works, you know. That really works. And they were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> we, did, we tell everyone about it, like it's not a secret. But, uh, but just, it, like it just, that was what was going to work for me, you know. Like, and the body scan is, because I use that too, and it's fucking amazing. It is fucking, it, it is Thinking just about your ankles, like. Because when I you're know. anxious, you're not, you don't even know if you have ankles. <laughs> like I told you, I spent six months of my life I spent six months of my life literally afraid of my shadow. I thought my shadow was possibly a different person and I didn't want to look at it. And when I started doing body scans and was like, I fucking notice and feel my feet. I'm thinking about the back of my fucking leg now and really bringing it in. You're grounding yourself. Yeah, that's full it. bodily awareness. And then all of a sudden things seem calm and rational. And now for me, it's like I trust my brain now. It's just a shadow. Everyone has them. It's not a different person. But when you're fucking really bad, the shadow... I convinced myself my shadow wasn't me and it was going to attack me. Yeah. I know it's funny. It is funny, though. <laughs> but that's the other thing. That's the other thing we spoke about was when you recover, like, if you, especially if you have a comedic brain, 
it's it's lovely to reassess it as being that was actually quite funny there when you were afraid of your shadow for six months. That would actually be a really good comedy sketch. Yeah. Like even like Jake yeah. Stevens, the character, like that's that's he's a very mentally ill man, you know? Oh yeah. I I think if I look back, all my characters are some form to represent some mental illness yeah. or some description. Yeah, and then as well, when I went into hospital, I remember thinking, everyone's going to be talking about me. You know, this is the thing, everyone's going to be talking, everyone's going to be saying, he's fucking mental, he's this, he's that, he's the other, you know, uh, and it'll be real negative, or, you know, I always knew there was something up with him, whatever, all this stuff. And then you get out of the hospital, and you tell the story, and no one gets it right, and you realise, no one was fucking listening at all. Like, <laughs> so I told, like, I was t- telling the story about meeting Stephanie Preisner. Like, I met her last year, I was in the worst ever state I was ever in. I met her then last week, met her with her new baby, we had a lovely day out and coffee and I was thinking, fucking hell, this is great. And I put it on Instagram and everybody starts going, you're going to be a great dad. I said, it's not my fucking baby, listen, <laughs> listen to the story. And then they thought we both met in the, in the mental ward. I was there, no, she was never in hospital. <laughs> you know, and, and it's moments like that as well, let you know, this isn't a big story for anybody else. It's yeah. only in your head that these are... Big stories, you know. Although there is a fucking part of myself that's thankful that this didn't happen to you in like 2008 because if you arrived in the hospital in 2008, every single patient would think that like, this is just a big sketch and he's here and there's cameras hidden everywhere, which if you're experiencing mental illness, imagining cameras places isn't great. They may not have been able to let you in. Uh, For real. It, it, there's this weird synergy I have with Kelly Harrington, right? So the week before I went into the hospital, she was on the show with us on over, right? That week, a few, and she really helped me without knowing it. Because, you know, she works as a cleaner in mm-hmm. Vincent's hospital. And she goes, oh, no, in the ward I work on, she goes, it's just normal people you'd, you'd see every day. And she had no idea what she was saying, but the, the comfort I got from that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the week I got out of the hospital and I was back at work, she was in again. Mm-hmm. And then it was on the Late Late Show, and she was on the week after. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I have this weird synergy with her, you know. It's, and, and she, when I told her, listen, I was there, Kelly, before you hear, because uh, I mentioned you in a podcast, uh, I was in St. Pat's, and she goes, oh, fucking, she sends me like a message, the prison. I was like, no, I wasn't in prison. <laughs> 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 and, and I went to the hospital, and she goes, right, right. She goes, I know this might be a stupid question, but was it like an undercover documentary, or were you a patient? <laughs> No, it was a patient. I was like, how the fuck would I be undercover? <laughs> People are going, you're a ringer for Pete. No. <laughs> um, I'm going to, because I'm conscious of fucking PJ has to get up at five in the morning to go on the radio. Um, I'm going to open up the audience now for some questions. Um, sorry. Um, so I'm an artist and I go to NCAD across the road. And um, last year, I recently channeled a lot of my trauma into the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I found it most successful, but also, like, most mentally taxing on myself. Yeah. So how do you feel, both of you, that you've channeled your trauma or your whatever has happened to you in your life into your art? And, like, how does it work for you? So that's a, that's a tough one, especially because I went to art college as well. And some of my tutors would always recommend... If you're doing work and this work is deeply fucking personal, you got to be careful because we're going to have to critique it at the end of the year. And when you bring your own trauma into a piece of work, something that has to be assessed, like it's not art in the real world, a tutor has to go, you pass, you fail. That's very fucking tough because the hardest thing with art, I find, is 
separating your identity from the fucking work, it's really, really difficult, incredibly difficult. Like, now I'm a fucking adult. I never really have, I never, like, my... So I often get asked, like, with my short stories in particular, like, why are your stories so fucking mad? Like, that, that story I read tonight, like, was pretty normal, and it's, that's about mental health. But most of my stories are fucking nuts. Like, I've got a story about turning Padre Pio's corpse into a drone. Um, <laughs> I've another one about uh, set in the 1970s where someone wants to skin Rory Gallagher and wear his skin. And people go, what the fuck are you doing this for? And for me, what it is, it's a combination of... of my artistic brain and also being anxious. So for me, the world is a very confusing place and it has been from a young age. The world is confusing and it's frightening. So I always found a great way for me to deal with the terror of being alive is to make anxiety my friend. And the best way to make anxiety, because when you're anxious, being anxious prone, and you'll understand this too, being an anxious person and then also being creative is a terrible fucking recipe. Because what happens is that your capacity to imagine things creatively turns on you viciously. So now I'm anxious and I have the ability to imagine all the different terrible things that happen until I think my shadow's attacking me. So what I would do is I'd go, maybe let's write a story about my shadow attacking me. Let, let's think of the most fucked up terrible thing and then bring humor into it and now it's my friend. And when I write, I feel healing, I feel catharsis, I feel a therapeutic thing. But then some fucking prick from the Irish Times <laughs> will, will, will review it and say, uh, this says nothing about the human condition. I don't believe in gatekeeping literature, but actual quote. And then it fucking hurts. But the thing is, is that I as an adult, critics are entitled to fucking crit criticize me. Critics are entitled, people are entitled to not like my work. And if I get deeply hurt by that criticism, that's all on me. And that's what I have to work towards. And that's what I'm talking about, hugging my inner child. When a critic says, your deeply personal work isn't good, the wound that I feel, is, is, it's not my wound as an adult, it's my fucking wound as a child. It's the child that told he was stupid. And I need to fucking hug him or else I'm going to get... I'm going to petrol bomb the Irish Times officers. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> How do you feel about that? I hope that ends no. up in the fucking news now. Yeah, I really do, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know. For me, I, it was, I, I did it in our space, to be honest with you. I got it all wrong. I, I wrote two shows. Uh, one about my adoption, that I did with Joanne, and then we did uh, the Madhouse show, which was about growing up in the house with everybody else. And... Um, I did those two shows almost as a way to prove to myself how okay I was with it all. And as I did the show, I realized I'm not fucking okay with this at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've literally only just learned now, like, like, and I mean in the last two years maybe, yeah, that, um, that it, to, to do that stuff and to do it right, you do have, you probably do have to be more comfortable with it. And I, I, I was too open and it kind of hurt people a, along the way, which wasn't fair. You know, I, I was How telling come? people. Because I suppose I was talking about um, my adoption and stuff that was personal to other people, you know, ah. and, and, it, and it affected people who deserved better, to be honest. Yeah. 
uh, it was a, I told, not, I thought I was just telling my story, but mm-hmm. you forget everything you fucking say affects other people, yeah. you know. And then with the Madhouse show, uh, I, I, my ma was totally cool with it, but I know that's the, maybe my sister was at the times. So I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. really sure because, and, and I also left her out of the story in a huge way. So, so I probably wasn't, uh, that was definitely, those two shows were trauma shows. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they were. Uh, whereas everything after that, now I have a much better take on it. Now it's like, uh, I like making jokes about stuff that everybody has in common, you know. And, uh, I guess uh, on the radio it's much more spontaneous and it's easier. Uh, it's, it's easier, but it's more natural. And I genuinely joke about stuff that is completely like uh, like uh, what am I trying to say? I genuinely joke about stuff that is very true to me that I'm definitely like I'm definitely okay with. Like when the audience hear it, they fucking know that's all right. You know that way. When we did some of the adoption stuff, there was moments where the audience could read it and go, oh, I don't know if that's all right. When the Madhouse stuff and, uh, you know, like even the joke about there was no mental health, you were either mentally or had health, you could see some people in the audience, that's not all right. Some people who were mentally ill at the time went to see that show and came out and says, listen, I'm not too fucking sure I like some of the stuff in there. And they were right because it was me trying to tell myself everything was okay. Uh, whereas that's different now. Now, you know, that is different. So I don't know if that answers your and question. Did you have a lot of people <laughs> who went through adoption coming to your adoption show? Oh, fucking loads. Jesus, loads. Some of them hate me uh, because some of them don't like the fact that I can laugh at my own story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, genuinely, the amount of people who stopped me and told me stories like uh, my husband doesn't know, my kids don't know, mm-hmm. uh, like deeply... Deep shame, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, nobody knows, like, I was literally the first person strangers had told, and then mm-hmm. other people who had much more horrific story, like, very horrific story, I don't have a horrific story, you know, mm-hmm. I, my parents stayed together and mm-hmm. went on and had a bigger family, and, uh, you know, so they, everyone sort of came out of it okay, <laughs> I guess, it, it's, it's actually weird that I have the same name as my oldest brother, and we're both the oldest brother of the same family, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, so but loads of that. And this last week, now when we did the adoption stuff and I did the stand-up stuff, this last week since we did the mental illness stuff, I have never had a reaction like that before. Like mm-hmm. I've done the late lady loads of times and thought so I thought I knew what to expect. Fuck never. The amount of lads, uh, especially, and uh, people who talk with their brothers, their husbands. Uh, mostly about men, and then there's like women as well. But uh, like, I'm talking thousands of messages, thousands. A lot of people went thousands of messages. mentally ill and over long, the past two years. Yeah, it, like it just like, shows how fucked up the society is that we're all, you know, that, those pressures. I don't know. I wouldn't but, say the society is fucked up. I'd say it's the structures of society. This is what happens when the structures aren't in place, and they're not. And yeah. the other thing as well. Any time, now this isn't, not the mental illness conversation, but any time you hear the fucking mental health conversation in Ireland, you can't separate it from the housing conversation. That's just how it is. Who the fuck isn't terrified about housing or rent in all of Ireland now? That's just how it fucking is. So when that is there, you're going to experience mental health difficulties because part of your reality is terrifying, and that's a given. So... If you hear any politician talking mental health, you go, and what about housing, sir? Or madame. Well, they can't call him madame. Miss. Mrs. I don't know. <laughs> Mary Harney. I don't know. Um, 
I'm going to take one more question. And do we have a mic upstairs? Because I don't want to be unfair to the people upstairs. There is a mic upstairs, yeah? Yeah. Um, does somebody upstairs have a question? Yeah. Over yonder. Hello, hello blind, blind boy, and uh, etc. or PJ, or whatever. Um, <laughs> etc. PJ. No, I, I really do have a, a question for both of you. I've always, I've always wanted to uh, get on stage and show my personality. How, how did you get over the stage fright for both of you? Blind boy, obviously, it was this arena where you had yourself here a couple of years ago. It's sentimental to you, but. How, in general, would you try to get over it? Is it just experience, just try and error? Or what? Um, for me, it was... So when I was first given the opportunity to go on stage, I just fucking... Like, obviously, I was terrified. I just knew I either fucking take this or I don't. And it was as simple as that. I either take this fucking opportunity and do it and fail on my whole, or I don't. And the thing is, I, I never want to I never want to look back at anything and say, I didn't do that because I was too scared to try. I don't mind looking back on gigantic failures. Failures are actually grand, but I never want to go, I had a chance, I didn't take it because I was scared, and there's nothing I can do about it now because time has passed. So my first ever chance to go on stage, um, we'd release songs on fucking MySpace. They got big. And then unintentionally, someone's like, now you have fans and they want a gig. So I'm like, well, fuck, what are we supposed to do? I think it was that weekend that we came up with the ideas for the plastic bags. And we just said, we just have to fucking do it. I know we only have two songs. Just fucking do it. So, like, feel the fear and do it anyway. If, if you really, if, if you genuinely want to get up on stage and do that thing you want to do, feel the fear, do it anyway, and lean towards failure. Expect failure. Because if you fail and you die on your arse, you'll feel fucking amazing. But if you don't do it because you were scared to try, you'll feel like shit. And that's a guarantee. What would you say? Uh, uh, very much that. Uh, I, I remember asking uh, co comedians, I was always in, the, in an awful state, and Kevin Gildee told me once that his son went to him and said, where do comedians go when they die? And he said, to the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> and that's the worst that can happen. Yeah. That's it. That's the worst that can happen. You yeah. die in your arse and you go home. Like, yeah. And you, you can think, you think of all these situations in your head. It's going to be, they're going to stare at me. They're going to be silent. They're gonna, no one's going to laugh. My jokes will be shit. I'll be this. The worst thing that's going to happen is you'll go home and watch TV. That's it. Yeah. Fucking try. Like, you can only succeed, you know? You do shit gigs. It's all right. When you come off stage and the next person is on... And they're funny. You're forgotten about anyway. So, uh, I, yeah. The other thing as well with, with uh, dying in your arse and failing, right? So if you're a, a performer and your profession, so that's your profession. If you're like a fucking uh, a fireman, right? Your profession is being around fire. So firemen practice being around fire for the laugh. They put on <laughs> all the clothes and they get into a room full of fire. And that's what they do. Now, that's terrifying, but they fucking have to do it because they're going to get a call on Friday. So going up on stage, dying on your arse, having people... I once did a gig in fucking Dulik. <laughs> like, no one knew who the fuck we were. We hadn't been on TV. The audience thought that we were two cunts up from Limerick who wanted to fight them. <laughs> um, 
half of them were doing cocaine out of their nails. And people, we weren't just dying on stage, people were throwing things at us. And one fella grabbed me by the collar and said into my ear, you know what you're doing, is it requires no talent, you just have a bag in your head, that's all you're doing. And then he walked away to the bar. I died on my hoop. We were chased out of town. Literally, I, I remember Mr. Chrome running bare chest at the, with the lights of Dulik. The, and, and worst thing that happened then, the check fucking bounced for the gig. Man, I am so thankful that happened. I fucking, that hardened the fuck out of me. The worst thing that could ever happen happened. And what did I do? I went home and I watched TV and I did a gig night the next week. It, it's true. Like, fucking it, do it. Yeah. It really is worth, and nobody gives a fuck about your success stories as well. No. Everybody loves a debt. Like, everybody yeah. loves it. I had a Russian man throw me over his dinner table at a gig. I had 220 accountants <laughs> chase me into a fucking car park. You know, and like, all this shit has happened. And then and we were in, I, I watched one comedian die so bad on his ass that when he finished the show, no one clapped. And one man stood up and said, didn't there used to be a pool table in here? <laughs> like, that, that was fucking it. And they are all good fucking stories. Like, if yeah. you die, you're going to have a story that will be funny. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. We're going to call it a night. All right. Because everyone has to be up for work in the morning. Thank you to my fantastic guest, PJ Gallagher. Thank you to all of you for being sound cons. Have a beautiful night. I hope you all enjoyed that. All right. And I'll catch you next week. Hopefully with a hot take. In the meantime, rub a dog and wink at a swan. God bless you all. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.